0: So, um, yes, I wanted to get into uh, some few passages with you guys this morning. Um, I was really praying for you guys after I was invited. I just felt the Lord lay a few uh, verses on my heart to go over with you. Um, So if you have your Bibles, if you go to Luke chapter 4, I'm going to provide a little bit of a context for you before we go into the passage. Um, I know sometimes we, we open our Bibles and we forget that, you know, there was a completely different scene in the moment when Jesus and the apostles, the disciples are preaching and the books that we have here. So many times we tend to read it from like the 21st century, 2023 perspective. So it's important to remember the the context as to these verses that we're reading. Uh, The Jewish people have been receiving promises about a coming Messiah for a very, very long time. Uh, and in their current situation in the first century, they're dealing with Roman oppression. Um, their land is basically being ruled by the Romans, and they're struggling with that. Obviously, there's 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 a number of things happening. There's racism. There's misogynistic things going on. There's a lot going on there. They also have a history, right? That one of their favorite, um, you know, Bible characters in a sense is David. And Jesus is actually called the son of David. And there's a sense that when, when they come to get liberated, that this son of David is going to be like the David in the Old Testament, that he's going to come with like a sword. He's going to come in and to free them from their current oppression, right? So uh, I, yesterday we went to a movie, Me, Alani, and the Kids, and it's funny because we we're talking um, about like, oh, what are your expectations about this movie we're watching? And I said to her, I goes, my expectations are very low because – I've learned through time not to have too high expectations, not to listen to all the hype around a movie, because, you know, you watch it and then you come out like, oh, you feel even worse because it didn't meet your expectation, right? Sometimes it's just, it's just good to go in with, like, no expectations or low expectations. And then if the movie's, like, half okay, you feel better about it, right? You're like, okay, it's not too bad. But in the same way, there's a, a big anticipation about Jesus and who, what he's going to be like and what he's going to do when he arrives. Right? And God literally sends a messenger, John the Baptist, to kind of prepare the way for Jesus' coming. So God knows, like, the people aren't really ready for Jesus, so he needs to send someone to come to prepare for Jesus' ministry and what he's going to focus on doing. So as we read this chapter, this these verses, I want us to think about that in the background, right? So in Luke 4 uh, verse 16, it says, so he came to Nazareth in a You guys are going to 18, but that's fine. I'll just read a little bit beforehand. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, was he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So wow, what a moment in history that uh, after all the anticipation, after literally the thousands of years of waiting for this Messiah, here's the moment of truth. Jesus re- reads this prophetic word from Isaiah 61, and he's basically saying, this is fulfilled. I'm here right now. The promise has been fulfilled. Now, as you read the rest of the chapter, you see that the people struggle with this, and they actually reject Jesus. They don't can't believe that it's really him. Because again, as you know, I was just saying earlier, there's an expectation about how Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come. And because he didn't come with, like, riding on a horse with the sword and, like, saying, okay, you're going to finally be liberated, there's a letdown in their hearts. You know, there's, there's, they're like, man, they're really disappointed. They're rejecting him. And there's tension in the rest of the chapter. And he begins to mention other people who received him or received God in the past, but not others who didn't receive him. Now, This, obviously, he's quoting Isaiah 61. So one of the key things before we go there is to recognize, in the beginning of the verse, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. So in a sense, God is saying through this verse that Jesus has been empowered and has been given authority to do a number of things. He's been empowered, he's been anointed to do a number of things. And he goes on, like I read, the rest of the verse to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. There's a number of things there that he is specifically, that's his role, right? So one of the key things that is missing here that sometimes we forget is that there's not heaven mentioned. There isn't, like, prosperity mentioned. There's a number of things that aren't mentioned in this verse that are a priority to God, but many times are not a priority to us. Right? The people have a certain expectation, and many times, again, we come to the Word of God with a certain expectation, looking for God to do certain things that we want him to do, but God is focused on other things. In this passage, it's clear that he's focused on the inner man. He's focused on what's going on inside of us. That's his priority. He sees it as, if I can get you free on the inside, all the other things on the outside will take care of themselves. And many times this is where we miss it with God because we're looking at the external, we're looking outward, and we're not recognizing the things that, are bound, that we're bound to that we can't see that Jesus wants us to see, that he wants to set us free from. Right? So let's turn to Isaiah 61 real quick and read what he's quoting a little bit more because I do believe that there's some interesting nuggets here for us to grab onto related to healing. Right. Years ago, I learned this through an incident with my own personal dog. Our um, first dog we ever had in our household. His name was Randy. Great little dog. He was a mutt, but we had gotten him from a pretty bad environment. It was kind of wild, and he was very possessive of his food. I remember one night I was 16, and he was eating his food, and I couldn't see what he was doing. And I went to go mess with him, and he ended up turning around and biting my face and literally had a huge gash across my, my both lips that required 16 stitches. It was horrific. I mean, I was bleeding. But I remember going to the bathroom, my mom saying, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I'm bleeding, and I get to the bathroom, and I'm like, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm thinking that I'm okay initially. But when I turn on the light and I saw the condition of my lips, I recognized that I needed someone above my pay grade to take care of my lips. <laughs> I literally said, hey, mom, turn on the car. We need to go to the hospital. Like, there was no hesitation in my heart because I saw the condition of my lips. And I'm like, there's no way I can just take care of this on my own. So we went to the hospital. And I remember that night, of uh, 16, I'm crying because I'm like, I'm never going to have a girlfriend, my face. Just all these important things to a 16-year-old, right? Like, I'm going to be just lonely. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh. So I get to the hospital. And I um, finally see the doctor, and I, I'll never forget, um, there was a plastic surgeon there that night. And he said to me, I never work in this hospital, and I never work at night. I'm not sure why I'm here. And I go, here, that's why you're here. And he was like, whoa. He was like, wow. So he ends up patching me up, and I remember after it healed, I was like, wow, this is remarkable. I thank God that I did not just band-aid this up and, like, just do it on my own. And this is part of why the scripture is so powerful. Because a lot of what happens in us with Jesus, as our our journey with him, is we tend to feel like certain wounds we can take care of on our own. Sometimes we look to other things outside of Christ to take care of deep things that have happened to us. And we struggle with that because we want to kind of feel like we can handle things. But again, there's a lot of things in this life that are just above our pay grade. We need to turn to him in order to bring real healing. If I would have taken care of my lips back in the day when I was 16, I mean, it would have probably healed. But trust you me, it would not look this good in the sense of like, you, you can't even tell I got bit. You wouldn't even know that I got bit unless I told you, right? It'd probably be all mangled and all like deformed, and you're like, oh, Jose, hi, Harry, nice to meet you, and just a little bit weirded off by me, because my lips would have been mangled because I decided to take care of myself. Are you tracking with me here? Remember, Luke 4 says, I've been anointed and empowered to do certain things. One of the the great ways that we show humility towards Christ is recognizing that there are some things that I can't do that only he can do in my heart. He's the only one qualified. It's like like if I have a foot issue, right? My, 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 My foot is hurting a lot. I don't go to an eye doctor. I don't go, hey, to the optometrist, can you take care of my foot? He'd be looking at me all crazy, like, what's, what's wrong with you? Like, No, you need to go to the specific doctor who has been trained and released to help you in this particular area. And this is the same thing. Jesus is called often the great physician. I love that. Like I personally, being in the Lord for 26 years or however long I've been in the Lord, there's been a lot of healing that's happened in my life. I recently, two years ago, I got healed of something that I was carrying for over 35 years in my life. I was seven years old. Like, sometimes we let the busyness of life keep us from recognizing the deep work he still wants to do in us that requires us to rest and to stop and be like, God, get in there, really get into the inner man. So we see here in Isaiah 61, he kind of like in this passage, it's more full, it's more of an exhaustive passage on God's intentions. And it's the same the way it starts the same way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He goes through a number of things he wants to do. And then in verse three, yeah, I even start with verse three. It says, To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. they may He may be glorified. Interesting. Again, all these particular healing issues in the heart lead to God dealing with identity. He literally ties our healing to identity. And it's, it's pretty wild when you think about that because, again, this is why we should not try to solve. Self- heal or self-care or all this stuff i'm not saying there's not a place for certain things where you do things on your own i'm saying that it should be an exclusive turning to jesus for the healing that we need because our identity is at stake what's god's purpose right he says they shall be called trees literally when you think about trees what do you think about you think about stability you think about something that's grounded stability right God wants to make us a stable people in our generation, and that comes from being healed by him, right? He does the healing, and then he begins to talk about identity. You shall be called trees, the planting of the Lord. And what God plants is something precious. We're all born in this generation, not just to get into heaven, but to be a tree in our generation, to be someone that, that people can rely on and trust who's actually been healed by God. And then he goes on to say, at the end of verse 3, that he may be glorified. One of the key questions in the Christian life is to ask yourself, am I walking with Jesus to glorify him? How important is his glory to me? We sang that song, "Be magnified to me, right? I love that song. The, the, one of the things we tend to lose through time is the idea that we've been brought into God's household to glorify him, not to please ourselves, right? So this is a tension in the church because many people, you can have a a, a room filled here, 100 people, 200 people, and maybe maybe a small percentage actually want the glory of God. Others are just maybe here because they just want to be pleased by him and to be served by him. It's more like a Santa Claus type of thing. But clearly in Isaiah 61, The idea of even healing is tied to God being glorified. That it should be a prayer that we consistently say, God, help me be someone who wants your glory, who wants to see you magnified. And that's tied to me actually allowing you to heal me in the inner man, to deal with the wounds that I can't take care of. And then he says, and they shall, they, those that are healed, they shall rebuild the old ruins And they shall raise up the former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. Isn't that amazing? The progression that we see in the scriptures. Healing, identity, you know who you are. I'm a tree, and he's going to mention priests soon. Trees and priests, and then there's work to do to restore others. You're literally walking and replicating what Jesus did on the earth By allowing him to heal you, and you embrace who he's called you to be, and then you're released into work. There are so many ruined places, so many ruined homes, so many ruined people who need people who are healed to bring them out of darkness, who actually have this sense of identity and purpose in their hearts and have experienced the master's touch, the great physician's healing power to liberate them, So some people may say, oh, I'm I'm, I'm free because I'm in church. Well, Jesus dealt with the same thing in the Scriptures. Many people came to the synagogues, and he literally had to deal with demons in the synagogue. There are people bound by demonic activity, even though they were physically in a synagogue. One of the craziest verses in the Bible, which is mind-blowing to me, is in John 8. Um, Jesus is addressing a number of things in John 8. (laughs) And he gets to the point where he begins to speak about the idea of being free. He says in this powerful passage, he says, this is John chapter 8. He says in verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When I came to Christ in 1996, I went into this job interview with a book called 13 Thinkers. It was an ex- excerpt from a number of philosophers. Because at that point in my life, I felt like I needed to create my own philosophy to deal with the heart issues in my life. I was like determined to find my way, just as Nietzsche, Freud, Descartes, all these philosophers had done. I'm like, maybe I should do the same thing. And then I had an encounter with Jesus Christ in this job interview. And I laid the book aside. I realized that my freedom was connected to the truth in God's word. He says, the truth is going to set you free, not your your opinions or your philosophies. And then they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Isn't that a wild verse for them to say? If you even know basic Jewish history, if you read Exodus, for example, you know that they've been captive for 400 years. And if you go through the rest of their history, there's a number of situations where they find themselves captive. He says, how can you tell us this? We've never been made captive before. It just reveals how blind they were to their need to be free. Right? And many times, again, we may think we're free because we're doing what we want, but are we actually truly free? It's one of the questions I thought the Lord wanted you guys to just pray through and ask. Am I truly as free as I think I am? Or is there more freedom connected to God's word that he wants me to experience? There is. I answer that question for you. There is more freedom. The Bible says in Psalm 1750, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, David says, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. He says, I'm not going to stop until I look like you. That's my goal. And I don't know about you guys, when I woke up this morning, I looked in the mirror, I didn't really look like him. (laughs) There's more work to do, a lot more work to do in me. And I'm a pastor. I mean, that's one of the key things in life. Never feeling like you've arrived at a certain place of like, oh, I've made it. I, I tithe, I attend church. Like, those are good things. I'm not knocking those things. But the image of Jesus, him being reflected through you, is the aim of every believer. This is Romans chapter 8. Those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's plan is very clear. He's not changing his plan. The issue for us is are we learning through time to embrace it and to submit to that plan and to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, man, God, there's still more work to do in me. And that's okay. It's not like you're being rejected by him. You're just being honest. And because Jesus is empowered to do the work, you can have confidence that he's able to do that work, right? Remember, he's been anointed to do this. He's been empowered. He has the authority to make us whole, to make us look like him. We should have great joy in knowing this. I remember when, before I became a believer, one of the hardest things for me was trying to work out, like, my own goodness. I worked very hard to try to be a good person. It was a weight on me. My parents uh, had a Catholic background, and they put a lot of expectations on me. They wanted me to be good, and I tried to be good. I worked really hard at being good. But some days would be better than others, right? Like, some days I did a couple good things, and then the next day it would be pretty bad. And I just felt this tremendous weight on me, like, am I good or not? Does this count? Is is this going to be taken away from me because I messed up this certain day? Like, it was a place of real anguish for me. Because I was in charge of the process of trying to be good. <laughs> Understand what I'm saying? I was the one carrying the weight of trying to make it happen in my own strength. And that's why the Bible says the good tidings. The part of the good news that Jesus is proclaiming is that you don't have to try to be good anymore. You literally don't have to try to strive to try to be a good person. What you need to do is put your faith in the Son of Man, in Jesus Christ, and learn to surrender to him over and over again so that he can come in and transform you, right? This is Romans chapter 12, verse verse 2. He says, present yourself as a living sacrifice, and don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Like God says, man, your role is to surrender, to lay yourself down, to surrender, and watch my word transform you. This amazing and beautiful physician, Jesus Christ, is working, changing us, transforming us more into his image. There's great joy in that. Because, again, (laughs) it's so contrary to the world. The world's like, man, you got to work, you got to do, you got to do, you got to do, you got to do. God's like, you got to learn how to surrender to me, your great physician, and watch me do the work. Over and over in Scripture we see this. There's great liberty there when we take off that yoke of bondage. This is, what, this is part of the captivity that he's talking about. I came to set the captives free. There are people bound by trying to use works to try to convince others that they're good. And that's not gospel. That's bad news. <laughs> that really is bad news. And I know what that feels like. I know to be on the other side of that, and it's hard. But Jesus says, man, just come to me, right? And I will give you rest. I will transform your life. So you see here in John 8 that the Jewish people are literally blind to their own captivity. And that's where he says, I can't give sight, recovery of sight to the blind. They don't see it. They don't see how bound they really are. And I'm not just talking about on the outward with the Romans. I'm talking about on the inward person. Later on, he says, Jesus did not give himself over to them because he knew what was in man. He understood what was inside of us that was working against us. He understood sin's power, its ability to master us. He understood that, and that's why he broke that off of our lives. You read Romans chapter 6, it talks about that. The freedom that we have from sin and from the power of sin. God liberates his children, those who trust him, into the power of the Spirit. You can live this life according to the Spirit. It's so powerful. So one of the things that came up, too, was in Luke chapter 15. The, the leader said that I had an opportunity to share for a couple hours, so you guys hold on, okay? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm almost wrapping up. Luke chapter 15, famous passage about the prodigal son. And we're going to get an example here. I'm going to try to give you two examples of how we come to God and how we need to understand that his ways and thoughts are better than ours. You guys know the story. The prodigal son takes his father's possessions. He wants his inheritance now, and the father grants him that. And he goes out and does prodigal living. He wastes everything. And there's a moment where he's in the, literally in the pigsty where he comes with his sense He's like, wait a minute. I'm in the wrong place. And it says here in verse 17, Luke chapter 15, verse 17, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I and I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It's interesting that though he had a moment of clarity, that he came to himself, in his heart he's already determining what restoration looks like. He's already saying. Father, this is how I want you to treat me based on my sin, based on my clarity right now. Treat me like one of your hired servants. And then, again, this is how many times we do come before the Lord. Like, we're, we're settling for something less. And, and as we read the rest of the story, it says, and when he arose and came to his father, then when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and thawed on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, and no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put on him, put it on him, and put on a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. And it's, wow. So it's a completely different expectation, right? Like the son's like, just make me one of your hired servants, and I'm good. That's what he viewed as restoration. The father was like, no, no, no. You're still a son, and we're going to party. I'm going to restore you to everything that you lost originally. So again, this is just another picture of how we can come to God and be like, I, you're kind of studying the terms of what restoration looks like. And God's like, I want to blow you away to what restoration looks like. You see the difference? Like we have to be careful not to come before the Lord and say, this is what I'm willing to settle for when God has something more for us to receive. Amen? Amen? So that's part of the tension here. Like us saying, God, your ways are higher and better. I don't want to settle for something less when you have so much more for me. Right? In 2 Kings, I didn't give this verse, but came up to mind while I was in prayer. In 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 14, we read the story of Naaman, the Syrian commander. Honorable man, he had led the Syrian army to great victories. The Bible said he was a leper, and he overhears this girl saying, "Man, if Naaman just would talk to the prophet in Israel, he can get healed." So he tells his his his, uh, king, "Like, hey, listen, I want to get healed. I want to go find this prophet." So he finds the prophet. Prophet tells him, "Listen, you need to go to the Jordan and dip yourselves seven times there. When you do that, your flesh will be restored." The Bible says that Naaman became furious. He was upset because he said in his heart, man, I came here expecting the prophet to come out and just kind of wave his hand over me and heal me. Again, another example. He had an expectation of how God should heal him. And it made him angry that God didn't heal him on his terms. Now, God provided a way for him. He says, man, I can heal you, but you're going to have to do it my way, not your way, Amen. He finally submits to that, and he finally gets healed. But the point is, again, we come to the Lord many times with an idea of what healing and restoration look like, and he has a whole different idea. And trust you me, it's much better than our plans. (laughs) It's much better than we think. Years ago, I was dealing with an atheist. She um, was making a very strong case as to why God didn't exist. We were co-workers at my uh, old job at a nonprofit, And I remember hearing from a, a, a secular scientist says that most people use about 5% of their brain. And all there is to know in this life. Maybe, if you're lucky, you may know 1% of all there is to know in this life from all the different subjects. And I remember the Holy Spirit telling me, ask her why she would put so much faith in what she doesn't know. And you, you put so much confidence in the 1% that you do know. And there's 99% of you don't know anything at all about. As human beings, we tend to be so convinced that we know what's best for us. And many times we really don't know what's best for us. Many times we're like that prodigal son or in Naaman Assyrian who's like, man, I know what's best for me. God, would you meet me there? Would you agree to my idea of what healing looks like? And God's like, no. You have no idea of what it really looks like. There's so much more of Him for us to walk in. I really want to encourage you guys today, this morning, as you're praying through receiving, uh, getting having a new pastor. And like, remember, Jesus even says it like in Matthew 9, like, He had compassion because they were a sheep without a shepherd. God has compassion over this community. And I'm thankful that already last week there was a word about Jesus being enough. Like, it's Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God. But, man, let's unpack it a little bit. Even throughout these holidays, I want to encourage you to look up these terms. Like, what does it really mean to be free on his terms? Is there something more, greater, that he wants to do in you in the days ahead? Where you're like trees, literally, oaks of righteousness. Where you literally are priests, like he says in that same passage, and they shall be called priests, mediators, people who hear God on behalf of man and hear God and his purposes. I love the priesthood. If you ever do a study on that, the priesthood is such a beautiful picture of a person who surrendered to God's agenda. It's like, man, it's about your agenda, not mine. I need to know what's on your heart and mind. But again, the progression. Healing is prioritized on God's terms. Identity comes through that. Mission comes through that. We don't make up mission, God leads us into mission. As we're surrendered to the work of healing and we're embracing who we really are, we don't wanna be prodigal. Oh, I wanna be called one of your servants. No, I am a son in your house. I've been adopted by the spirit of adoption into God's household. And because that's who I am, you want to restore me on your terms and bring me into the things you're meant for me to do. Okay? So that was the book of my message. I want to pray for all of you right now that you would receive this, again, as you enter into this holiday season even more. That there's just a deep longing in your hearts for more of Jesus to restore you on his terms, his way. Father, thank you so much for this congregation. They're precious to you they belong to you. I ask you, Holy Spirit, that as we read these as we write these passages, that they, you would quicken something in each person to want more of you, more restoration on your terms. They may not settle for having uh, a lot of money in their bank account or um, diplomas or accomplishments. May they see that you want to set them free inside of them of bitterness and uh, whatever issues are in the inside, whatever is binding them, bounding them, Lord, I ask you, Lord, that, that you open their eyes and they would be confident that you're able to set them free. You're able to give them a garment of praise over the spirit of heaviness. I pray they would embrace desiring to become trees of righteousness, priests in your house, a royal priesthood. Jesus, have your way. Just remove but remaining pride in our hearts, we don't want us to be the ones in charge. We want you to be fully in charge and heal us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.